Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. If you're still deciding on your spring break getaway, Amtrak's got just the ticket. You can visit cities from D.C. and Philly to New York and Boston, all while enjoying more sustainable travel. Amtrak produces up to 83% less carbon emissions than traveling by car or plane. And did we mention the extra legroom and comfy seats? Book early and save at Amtrak.com. Click or tap the banner. Emissions comparisons vary depending on route and locomotive type. Restrictions may apply. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to our first talk here in the briefing room, as we've decided to call it. Those of you who are We Have Ways listeners will be familiar with our speaker, I hope. Um, my father, Ingram Murray, ladies and gentlemen. And well, thank you very much, everybody. I, I'm not as funny as he is, but I'll try my best. Now, we all know what happened at Pegasus Bridge, don't we? The Oxenbachs took it, Shimmy Lovett, wearing his white pullover, came striding up the towpath and took over. Well, of course, that's all absolute rubbish. (laughs) The first ground forces to get to Pegasus Bridge were three white armoured cars. You've got a couple out on the park there with the commanding officer of 17 Field Company Royal Engineers and his two recce officers. And they had come to reconnoitre the site for some bridges because the Orne River and the Cane Canal were such formidable obstacles that First British Corps had a very, very complicated bridging plan to make sure that they could get across to the 6th Airborne Division that had landed on the far side of the river with tanks and logistic vehicles. So you can see that was a rafting plan, there was a bridging plan, and they were ending up with eight eight Bailey Bridges capable of taking a tank, class 40 (laughs) Bailey Bridges. But the two that the the, uh, OC 17 Company had come to reconnoitre were two special bridges which were to be on, on the River Orne and on the Cane Canal. And I'll elaborate on those in a minute. So there we are, 16 minutes past midnight, and six gliders land, at least five land round the bridges. The sixth, of course, goes astray, goes down to the wrong bridge, and they all sit there saying, God, what the hell's going on here? Um, But in the gliders that landed on Pegasus Bridge and what became known as Horsa Bridge, there were, of course, a platoon of sappers. And they had a very special job. And you can see that's the photograph taken by a Spitfire about HR, 7.30 in the morning on D-Day, with the three gliders. 
Um, number three is broken in half and everybody spilled out into the, into the pond there. But they all got out, they were a bit shocked, and they went for the bridges. And of course, this is the famous John Howard, who took command of D Company. He was a ruthless trainer of men. He'd been a professional soldier in the KSLI. He'd got to Warrant Officer 1, so he was a, a pretty tough guy. He then became a police inspector in Oxford, and it says a lot for a posh regiment like the Ox and Bucks. They took him to their hearts, made him D Company commander, and he trained his troops ruthlessly. Each glider contained 28 men. That was a platoon in, in a glider regiment. And, and among them were 20 sappers, including two officers. And they came from Sandy Rutherford's 249 company. They were companies in those days, uh, Airborne RE. And they were specially trained glider troops, just like the Ox and Bucks Light Infantry. So they knew all about loading drills, which they needed, and they knew all about how to get out of a glider when it actually landed, supposing, of course, it was still in one piece. So this was the job that the sappers in those gliders had to do. The two officers had a very specific job to do, which I'll come to in a minute. But first of all, the job was to remove the demolition charges, which were believed to be on the bridges. It was natural for the Germans to have, have, have rigged them for demolition, and uh, it was actually found that they were stalled. They weren't on the bridges at all. So that was a great relief. And they had then had to check whether the bridges had been damaged or whether there were any mines about. And there were one or two mines. And then the officers had the job of calculating the load, char uh, load um, capacity of the two bridges to see whether they could take Sherman tanks because swimming tanks were coming ashore on D-Day, on Sword Beach, to reinforce the airborne, and they had to get across the river and across the canal. So it was absolutely vital to know whether the bridges could take a tank. And then they had to report to those Royal Engineer Ricky parties coming up the, the towpath that I mentioned in the opening words on this talk, to tell them whether these bridges could take a tank and tell them whether the special bridges which are coming ashore on the first tide were needed. Now, a third British driven was coming in on Sword Beach, which you'll hear about later on, and because of an offshore reef, they could only land on a one brigade front. Um, the beaches were organized by the Fifth Kings and the First Bucks, that's the fifth and sixth beach groups. And they came ashore, the assault uh, infantry first of all, and, and the special funny tanks, followed by breaching parties. And on the first tide, these white scout cars with the engineer recce, and indeed, on the first tide, some bridging equipment. And the bridging equipment, which was floating bridge equipment, lightweight floating bridge equipment, actually gets to a place near the bridge at noon on D-Day. So even before the commandos get there, there's some bridges waiting for them. I can't believe that film lied to us, Dad. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, to familiarise yourself with the, with the geography and, and the, the, the air landing, uh, the first airborne landings 
well, in this area here, landing zone and drop zone N. And the two uh, coup de main bridges were here and here, and on landing zone Whiskey, on the evening of D-Day, the rest of the oxen bucks and the Ulster rifles come, come in on the wrong side of the canal. So it was very important for them to be able to get across as well. Uh, on this side, you had major parachute landings at about one in the morning, and you had glider landings at about three in the morning, uh, containing anti-tank guns and headquarters elements. It, and of course, advanced parties of the engineers who were going to clear the landing zones and reinforce the bridges. And we'll come to that story in a minute. This is the special map that was issued to people called bigots. Now, bigots were those who were let into the secret before the formal briefings where everybody got on a ship and, and went off to Normandy. So they were very privileged people. And the map shows the, the areas uh, that were covered by anti-landing poles, where the machine guns were, the anti-aircraft guns were, and so on. And they were based on information provided by low-level photo recce, by information from the resistance, who were very cooperative in this area, and, of course, um, by uh, spies of one sort or another. <laughs> and among the bits of intelligence that were created, were, were collected, were postcards of people's holidays on the French coast. And among these postcards was one of famous Pegasus Bridge, which is a very rare piece of engineering equipment. A Scherzer rolling bascule canal bridge, of which there was only one other in, in the UK. And it had been sold to the French by a, an enterprising American salesman from Scherzer, US. And it, it is a very extraordinary piece of kit because it rolls um, in a cradle like that. And what was not known was whether this could take a tank. So it was absolutely vital to work out whether it could. And of course, whether it was damaged or whether the Germans had jacked it up and jammed the machinery. So what do you do then? So they were collecting tremendous amount of information collected on the type of the bridge and on the way it was operated by, by the French which they got from the resistance. The second bridge over the Orne is a swing bridge, which pivots on a central pivot there. It, it was cranked round by some wretched character, and it carried... <laughs> the lifting bridge, by the way, was electric. And one of the sappers, when he got to the bridge, got a pair of wire cutters, got to a cable and bloody nearly electrocuted himself, uh, cutting the cable to the lifting mechanism. And this is, the, this is the second bridge. And the second bridge carries the tramway that had originally been carried by the predecessor to Pegasus Bridge, which went from the beach uh, across to Ranville and also to some quarries, which had been used to quarry stone for the harbour on the coast. And you can see the little railway running across it. And the question was, again, would this take a tank? Low-level recce, they measured the gap, 
They looked at the defences, they worked out what the garrison was, and of course the French told them an awful lot as well. So they had an extremely good idea when they all landed in their gliders what they were up against. Now helping their decision on what the, what the bridge could take, or the bridges could take, was the fact that the Germans had not doubled the bridges with the military bridge. And that indicated that they were confident they could take their standard battle tank, which was the Mark IV, which weighed about 25 tonnes at the time. It had a big, bigger gun and it had bazooka plates, so it was a bit heavier than the, the early ones. But because there was no parallel bridge to either bridge, the engineer int intelligence people said it can probably take a 33-ton Sherman, but we're still crossing our fingers. Now, the gliders, in case anybody here has no knowledge of the gliders, were built by the, the furniture industry, mostly by women in places like High Wycombe, and they were delivered to the airfields as a kit of 30 bits, which the maintenance units then bolted together. They're all made of wood, of course, bolted together, and then someone, lucky chap, had the job of test flying it, um, and, then, and then they were, they were uh, put in to the glider parks, which the airborne division, the, the gliderborne bits of the airborne, were, were going to uh, load up. And they took 28 men, they were towed by a bomber, so you needed something fairly tough to take it off, although in practice, a Dakota could tow one, and later on, particularly in the Arnhem operation and the Rhine crossing, a whole lot of gliders were towed by, by, um, by British Dakotas, 46 group Dakotas. But it was nevertheless quite a lump, and some of the older bombers couldn't do the job. Um, to get in and out, there were two doors. There was a, a, a door, you can see these chaps are climbing in or climbing out. And there was a ramp, and behind the chap who's halfway in and out, the, the, the side of the glider came down like that, and you could back in a jeep or an anti-tank gun. And you had another door at the back, uh, out of which you popped if you were at the um, rear end of the glider. So you got two ways in and out. And you got 28 men in, in there, in very cramped conditions. And of course, in the ones landing on the bridges, there were a whole lot of engineers' tools, there was a, a folding boat, uh, there were dinghies, and so on, because if the bridge had been up or destroyed, the engineers would have had to paddle the infantry across, and nothing would have given them greater satisfaction. <laughs> um, the folding boat that went in glider number two was the standard assault boat. It took ten men, it, it folded down, and they put it on the floor with, with the paddles, and they also had a, a, a rubber recce boat, which they could get across. And again, they would have slid that out and put it in the, in the canal and paddled across the oxen bucks, uh, again, to their greater satisfaction. Now, coming down in other gliders were four rafts to take anti-tank guns. And they fitted in an anti-tank gun uh, raft like that, in four gliders that came down on landing zone N, and there they were to be towed to the edge of the Orne River, and if the, either bridge was out, they were going to be rafting anti-tank guns across to and from the airborne division. So you had rafts coming over the beach, and you had rafts coming down 
in the gliders. So there's a lot of equipment ending up on the riverbanks. Dad, may I just ask, how much redundancy is built into that? Is there, is there too much of everything in case it doesn't turn up? Because that's a frequent glider problem, that, that isn't it? That is very much 150% redundancy and of course they did not know what condition the bridges were going to be in they didn't know they were going to be shot up by air attack uh, counter attack you name it the risks of course it all looks very simple in retrospect but the risks were not what not known at that particular time and as you can see much to the chagrin of a whole lot of chaps in seven para they were all given an RAF dinghy or a piece of rope and told to jump with it in their kit bags. You just imagine the effing and blinding that went on when they were told to do that. And there you can see the kit bags, which, which they, they would have to take down. And those of you who are not parachutists, um, of course, you, you, you probably don't know that you jump with a, with a container contained to a, a, attach your harness and you let it down on a rope. Um, and it, in the war, it was a standard reinforced ordinary kit bag um, in which you put your mortar, your machine gun, your ammunition, your kit, and all the rest of it. So it's quite a load. And as well, there were three bulldozers packed into, into gliders coming down to help clear the landing zones and also to create bank seats and, and uh, ramps for, for rafts over the canal and, and the river. This was the Clark tractor, it was an American thing, it fitted inside the glider. One went into the channel and was never seen again, very sadly. And they were got off an American engineer battalion because the commanding officer of, of the field park went along and said, I, I would like one of those. And the colonel of the engineer battalion said, sure, guy, all I need is a, a letter from your colonel and you can have as many as you like. So we'll have three, please. Or we'll <laughs> and they were very useful. They, they were taken out of the gliders on the landing zone and they helped uh, push the, the poles out of the landing zone and level it out for the gliders that were coming in at three and four in the morning. So here we are. We've landed at Pegasus Bridge. You can see the three gliders there behind. Howard is in possession. And the two officers are um, trying to measure the dimensions of the flanges of the bridge under fire, it has to be said. Bullets pinging off the bridge while they were sort of like that, measuring and working out whether the girders of the bridge and the decking of the bridge could take a Sherman tank. And they were very doubtful. The original engineering assessment from photographs had been class 18, which would not have been a Sherman tank. And so they're, they're, they're puzzled, but they thought it, 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 it might do. But they were very worried about the second bridge, the swing bridge, because one of the abutments was cracked. Anyway, Frank Lohman, who is the commanding officer, Royal Engineers, of 6th Airborne Division turns up in the early morning. He's jumped into Ranville Village. He lands in a, someone's garden. He finds himself in the middle of, an Ameri of, of a German anti-parachutist patrol. So he has to do a bunk pretty quickly. He does a bunk, climbs over, climbs over a, a fence and lands in a, in a, in a, in a midland. So by the time he gets to Pegasus Bridge, he stinks. 
of, of he stinks of manure. But anyway, he says, I'll risk it. I'll risk that the safety factors built into these two bridges means we can, they'll take a tank. First, first tank turns up. The driver says, or the commander says, I'm not going off, off that fucking bridge. <laughs> <laughs> and, and one of the two engineering officers hops up and says, go on, if you go in, I go in. So th they went across. But there was severe doubt about the swivel bridge, and I'll come to the solution to that. Anyway, here we are. Here are three scout cars that have come up to lay out the bridges, these two special floating bridges, over the Cannes Canal and over the River Orme. Unfortunately, the bridge sites are under fire and still under enemy occupation. So when 17 Company comes plodding across from the beaches, they get involved in the fighting. And by four in the afternoon, they've lost all their officers and about 30 men. So 17 field companies out. And 71 field company, which comes up afterwards, takes command. And by the time that the Warwicks have chased the Germans out of, uh, of Ranville and Benouville, and they can get to the bridge site, it's D plus two, because the delay in reaching the bridge sites and marking them out. There was also the most tremendous delay in coming over the beach. That is actually Sword Beach today at high tide, and you can see how very narrow it is at the top. And this is where they landed. And of course, the exits are controlled by that marshy area, so they were very limited number of exits, and they had to be cleared of mines and uh, wrecked tanks, and goodness knows what, and the old German, of course, who was still hanging around. Um, and it took a very long time for, for the bridging equipment, which was on the first tide and later on the second tide, to get to the bridging sites. This is Sword Beach. You can see how jammed it was. All kinds of armoured vehicles moving about, lots of wrecks, mines hadn't been cleared, and all that sort of thing. So, pretty chaotic. And the lateral road that ran along the back of the beaches was e equally jammed. And you can see these people all hanging around and, and smoking and, and making tea, which is, of course, what the British Army is extremely good at. Um, now, I mentioned these two special floating bridges over the canal and over the river. And this is the first one. And they were built to a special kit uh, with a special floating special floating uh, raft here, and two 110 triple single Bailey spans. Now, for the Bailey bridges among you, you will know that 110 feet is the maximum length you can do a triple single for class 40. Otherwise, you have to go up a story, which complicates the building process. So yes, I knew that they yeah. decided they decided on the spot where they could just fit 200 feet between 220 feet between the base plates of, of the, of, and with this special raft. And they built it out. And I can elaborate on the building in a minute if, if, if the experts want to challenge me. Um, <laughs> and uh, but it was a very complicated process. And they had trained endlessly at Ripon by doing it by day and by night. 
and it was, a, it was a special procedure that they developed to build this very special bridge. But the bridging equipment came in dribs and drabs because of the jam on the beach, so they couldn't build it straight away. And it, they had to improvise the building process, and they built the one over the, the current canal, which they called London One, um, first of all. And you can see two triple single spans. Now, this is London 2, which is the same idea, but rather longer. It had a 60-foot span in the middle, which was much more difficult to build, and it took much longer, but it's basically the same idea. But one very important thing about both bridges is that they anticipated that the Germans would blow the lock on the canal, which would reduce the level in the canal to a few feet. So the bridges had to articulate in the middle to cope with the tidal range. The tidal range in the Orne River was 12 to 14 feet, and that controlled the, the building, because at certain points you couldn't launch things until the tide had come up and it, and it was more or less level, and you could, you could span out and, and put it on that special raft in the middle. The other problem was that both building sites were continuously under shell fire the whole time. So there was a trickle of wounded the whole time. There were times as well when there was a flap and all the sappers had to down tools, pick up their rifles and then help defend the bridges. And there was one complete, one complete day when they couldn't build any bridges because there was fighting going all around and there, there was fear of a counterattack. So the bridging process was very, very uh, seriously held up by all kinds of factors. This is the basic Bailey Bridge components, and this is where the lesson in Bailey Bridging starts. Uh, I've got the manual here for those who, who, who are interested. Um, and you can see it was a very simple Meccano-like construction, a 500-pound panel um, which you carried uh, with, with carrying bars under your arms like that, and it could be made into triple trusses, it could be made into triple stories, and depending on what you were carrying over it and the length of the span, so as a sapper officer, you had to work out what construction you, 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 you needed for the bridge. And it could go up to class 100. So it was a very, very versatile piece of kit. And it went together like this. You, could, you can see this is a, 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 a triple um, <coughs> truss bridge here. Those are bracing frames, those are the transoms. That was an eight-man load, by the way. These are the base plates onto which the bridge came down. These are the end posts and the bearings. And on a floating bridge, of course, this slid backwards and forwards to allow for the, the, the expansion of, of the bridge. <coughs> it was a very clever piece of kit, very versatile, and it was all done by muscle power, uh, all manpower. So, it, and it was very hard going. I've, I've done it. And this is my squadron building a Bailey Bridge in the Suez operation in November 1956. You can see this is a triple truss. Uh, this is a couple of chaps bringing a jack forward. This is the floating bit here, the floating bay. This is the landing bay. Here. Now that was built to class 60 because we had centurions going over it and 
I can tell you, when the first centurion went over, we all held our breath. <laughs> and I think they probably did as well. <laughs> anyway, they got over. We'd built the bridge in training out to sea in Cyprus. There are no rivers in Cyprus, so we had to build it out to sea. The kit was in an appalling condition, and then a storm came up and the bloody thing sank. So, <laughs> so it had to be all fished out, put in a ship, and brought over, and, and we built that um, on sort of D plus two. And that's that, that D. And here's how you launched it. Pure manpower, down onto the landing bay raft. That, that's a huge transom in there called landing bay transom, which spreads the weight all across the floating bays. These are pontoons made up of three sections. And the bridges, the two bridges, the bridging equipment required 97 lorry loads of equipment to come over the beach. 97 loads of, of equipment. About half of them were pontoons. And, and because the pontoons kept on getting hold, they had to be taken out, new ones put in. But some clever fellow had filled them, <laughs> had filled them with empty petrol cans so that when a piece of shrapnel went through, it just knocked a hole in the three or four petrol cans, and the rest kept it afloat. And someone was thinking ahead, you know, like the, like the landlord does. You know. <laughs> That's how they pushed out the spans for those two special bridges. And they were completed, um, as I'll say, in, in, uh, in, uh, in, in a couple of days after D-Day. But because they needed to get tanks across the Orne River. The sappers also built a class 40 raft for, for Sherman tanks, which they ran across the Orne River. Now, the Orne River, of course, being tidal, has very strong streams. So operating that, as well as building the bridge with the stream, was, was a, a very difficult job. And, and some of it went quite wrong at various points. But they, you know, being sappers, they caught up with it and sorted it all out. And that is what London Bridge 1, the first bridge over the Camp Canal, looked like when it opened. And you could see a military policeman controlling the spies coming across on their bicycles. Um, <laughs> and you can see the floating bit here with the special pier on it here. And you can also see the, the break between the two bits of the bridge, which permitted it to go up and down. As it was, the Germans did not blow the locks. So actually, the level of the canal was fairly even. But on the other hand, the, the bridge over the River Orme, which is that one, London Bridge 2, with its two rafts, went up and down 12 or 13 feet twice a day. So that, that's quite, a, quite a, a, a thing. Now, the next job, apart from the, the light bridges that I talked about earlier, made out of folding boat equipment, um, was to build several more class 40 bridges over the canal and over the, over the river. And you can see there were, there were, there were two built here over the locks. There were a couple built there, and I'll show you a picture of, of York 1. Those, that's Pegasus Bridge, which to the sappers was Euston, of course. Um, and they didn't know about Pegasus at that point. Um, and here is 
London 1, and here's London 2 that I've been talking about. And they, of course, are south of Beneville and south of the famous Beneville Hospital, which was being held by the Germans, which is why they couldn't put them up initially. This is what it looked like after the landings. You can see London Bridge 2 there. London Bridge 1 is just off there. There's the, the, the track going there and across there joins the road there. And that is Horsa Bridge. And you can see here landing zone N with all the gliders. You can see here Howard's glider here. And the other glider came down close to, uh, to Horsa Bridge here and the one that went slightly astray here. And of course, the other one's over here somewhere about five miles away, and they're still marching towards the sound of the guns. And you can see there are some gliders here, and they're probably the ones with the rafting equipment that came down in the middle of the night to augment the rafts over the, the river at this point and the canal later on. So as Alistair was saying, there's tremendous redundancy in, in the whole operation for, for obvious reasons. Now, this is how you've you coupled up a, a floating Bailey Bridge, which is already a fairly hairy process, particularly with, with a current running here. You can see people swinging it round. This is the, what's called the landing bay. It hasn't got its decking on yet. Um, you swung it round, and this is the landing bay raft, and these are the floating bays, all of which are constructed in slightly different ways. And they would be swung together and hooked up together there. The decking would be laid. Anchors would be put out to contain the pontoons against the current. And the bridge would be opened with military policemen and a control um, uh, on each end. And the capacity of the bridge during the day was about 230 vehicles an hour. It was, of course, a one-way system. So the military police controlled uh, the flow of traffic, and they had an up and a down route, of course, as well. And also, um, the, the, uh, by night, there were about 180. Much more risky by night, because the drivers of armoured vehicles couldn't really see uh, the edges. Um, and some, uh, one or two little bridges that they built got seriously damaged by tanks running into them. So that is how you built a floating Bailey Bridge, and that's, that's quite a big one. This is, this is York 2, which I showed you on the map. And York 2 was built in about 24 hours by two field companies, which shows how very quickly a Bailey Bridge could be built. Um, and that's a, a centaur or something going across it. And you can see the floating rafts and, and the connection here between the landing bay and the floating bays and the separation of vehicles, which was kept under control by the military police, was 100 yards between vehicles. Um, so you didn't overload the bridge. One of the bridges was destroyed by some idiot who drove across a low loader with a Panzer V on it, and it went into the, into the, um, into the orn. So there must have been some swearing then, I guess. So, uh, Dad, just, can we just go back to that picture? So is that a 110-foot span in the foreground there. Uh, it would be something like that. Right, I, I okay. mean, I could probably tell you from the yeah. draw drawings I've got. That's what's called the landing bay. Yeah. And that landed on this very, very large girder here. It was what's called hook posts, which articulated on, on the girder. 
and the girders weight, well the weight from it was distributed across the pontoon, yeah. the landing bay pontoons, with a, a special distributing girder, uh, which was again all articulated. Um, because the whole thing, of course, when a tank went across, did that. Um, which was the first time you experienced it, was, was a moment of <gasps> um, <laughs> but but uh, everybody got used to that. Right. And it shows how, shows how very quickly you could build Bailey Bridging because that was, that was built in, in a, about a day, or a day and a night. And here we are, this is the swing bridge. Eventually, someone persuaded the, the sappers, that the, or the sappers persuaded themselves, more like, that the uh, broken abutment wasn't serious, and it was reclassified as class 40. And here you are, here's a Sherman coming across, there it is, Euston Bridge, proper name, of course, not none of this Pegasus stuff. Um, and, and it's bridge plate, class 40, which shows you the maximum weight uh, which a vehicle which can go across. Um, at, at that point, it would probably be the Churchill tank, which was, of course, heavier, 39 tons, heavier than Sherman. So there we are, job done. <laughs> This episode is brought to you by Viore. Give the active people in your life something they'll truly appreciate. Performance apparel from Viore. Whether they're into running, surfing, hiking, or even just casual walks around the block, there's something for everyone. And if you're not sure what to gift them, you can't go wrong with something from Viore's Dream Knit collection. It's the perfect gift and so comfortable. Get 20% off your first purchase today at Viore. V-U-O-R-I dot com slash Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Do we have any questions? Um, Colonel... Uh, as another Colonel Royal Engineers, um, it's good to hear that the whole point of D-Day was an opportunity for the engineers to deploy their plant. Um, I mean, yeah. I mean I, I've only explained part of it. No, no, no. I mean, enough, you you want enough. the second half of the lecture, uh, I can tell you about the airfields uh, and, and, and the beach teams and the problem with water supply. You're talking my language. Um, 
having built Bailey Bridge in my time and still bearing the scars, um, do you believe, from what you said, the amount of contingency which they had, do you think if things had gone wrong it was enough? Or do you think they actually over-egged it and there was too much? Given what they had? I think there was just enough. Uh, was, there, was there too much bridging? That's the question. Was it over-egged or was it was there too, too much? They planned on 930 foot of Bailey bridging um, in, in, in the first sort of phases of the, of the landing, the crossings, and they had some, some minor, you know, culverts and things to, to bridge as well. Um, and uh, I think it would, turned out to be just enough. Um, the the, um, the problem was the delay because of the, the very slow movement of bridging equipment. The second uh, tranche of bridging equipment came in barges. And the barges had to be unloaded onto the beach and then loaded back onto the transport and taken back. So the, the RSC bridging company operated a circuit like that. And the CRE 3 division, who went by the name of Tiger Urquhart, imagine that, um, turned up at the bridge on the evening of D-Day and said, come on, chaps, what's happening here? And promptly ran over a mine. <laughs> so his, his half-track lost, lost its front end, and his ears were ringing for a bit. Um, so he was a bit out of action. But basically, the... the the, the, the training of the, of, the, of the local squadron commander, company commanders, was such that, that effortlessly they took over in spite of the very high level of casualties among the bridging, the, the three bridging companies. Um, so that's a slightly different question to the amount of material. Did they have enough men who were trained efficiently to produce quick bridging? And they, they just did because basically they trained very hard for it and they were able to improvise and the sappers you know, were, were, were able to multitask would be the well, date. Well, well, in a way, they're interchangeable like the parts of the Bailey Bridge, aren't they? Yeah. 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 So, so they reflect the equipment in that sense. They reflect the equipment in that sense, yeah. But I mean, the, the, the two bays on each bridge, the landing bays, were very familiar in terms of their construction. You know, but the the raft bit in the middle was was the odd bit, um, which they they had re rehearsed uh, at Ripon, and they had this special kit f uh, f coming in over the beaches. Another question. You can touch the microphone this year if you want. <laughs> you remember? <laughs> Thank you. Um, I'm sort of minded of Elliot Gould's admiration for the Bailey Bridge. Yeah. Is quick bridge building a uniquely British? ability and skill at this point in terms of both the kit they've got as the Billy Bridge and the training and the the, the, met, the, the experience and expertise and training they've got? I think the answer is of course. As a comment, if you look up the Bailey Bridge on Wikipedia these days, uh, without confessing to it of course, um, <laughs> you will find probably that the Americans invented it. And like every other bloody thing concerned with the Second World War, it was, it was American. 
Well, of course, it wasn't. The Americans had nothing like it. They had a very good floating bridge made out of rubber pontoons, a trackway bridge, uh, which were very quick to build. Uh, but it was only one class, basically. You could take a tank, that's about it, nothing bigger. So the Americans adopted the Bailey Bridge, and they thought it was the best thing since BAM. Uh, <laughs> you know, they, they really admired it, and they learned how to build it, and their engineering construction battalions became experts in it, and they acknowledged it you know, throughout Northwest Europe, because it was, they built them everywhere. They built the trackway bridge across the Rhine near Wesel, uh, there's a very, very famous picture of it. Um, the British built a railway bridge over the Rhine, out of Bailey Bridges, uh, bridging there. They also built um, <coughs> a, a um, Class 9 FBE bridge, which is little folding boats against the current. Um, so bridging, by the end of Northwest Europe, was a really efficient process. And this was really the start of it. That, that bridge over the canal was the first Bailey Bridge built on continental soil after D-Day. So, you know, that, that holds pride of pace to do that. It was specially built, and it was built by 17, 71, and 253 two, uh, engineering companies. We have one here. Um, as the war moved on, did they dismantle these things and move them forward? Uh, yeah, well, it, 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 in what might be called my midlife crisis in, in military engineering, um, there were a bridge called a Hathby and a Lathby, a heavy floating bridge and a light floating bridge. Um, and that came uh, basically as a set of pontoons with, with the, the, the metal, metal bits um, on board. And you, you sort of flipped them up and connected it all, and it became an instant class 30 or an instant class 60 bridge, something like that. That was a, 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 a great improvement. It was quicker to build than, than the floating bailey. But then also what happened was some clever Frenchman, it had to be a Frenchman, didn't it, of course, um, some clever Frenchman designed a bridge that drove itself so the, the, the driver sat in the front of the pontoon looking, peering through a window, and it had wheels, and it drove itself about, and it drove itself into the river, and several of them became very friendly and connected themselves up. And it became uh, it called the Gilois Bridge, and it was copied inevitably by the Americans, which they then called the M2 Bridge. But similar idea. You know, it was, a, it was a mobile set of pontoons with, with four wheels, uh, which, when connected up, could cope with a, a tank load. I don't know whether that answers your question fully. Maybe Johnson, by the way, still make Bailey Bridge. They make a bigger version of Bailey Bridge, and civil engineers all over the world still use them. Um, although, I mean, they're sissies these days, so they tend to use mechanical handling and all that sort of stuff <laughs> um any, any more uh, uh, over there okay in the england cap can you pass the mic hello thanks um how long would these bailey bridges last for would they last sort of depending on how well they were built obviously i'd imagine but how long would they last for there are two answers to that question um one is how long did the decking last because 
Um, when there was armoured traffic over the, the decking, particularly, it wore out very quickly. And on these bridges I've been talking about, they laid a, a layer of extra decking on top of the regular decking, and that was changed every day. There was a maintenance uh, section by every bridge, and they upped, upped the, the worn-out planks and, and put down new uh, wearing surfaces every single day because of the armoured vehicles going over, chewing them up. And particularly if the drivers steered, and you've seen the marks made by a tank out here, uh, they would tear the things up. And the other important thing is you needed a, a turning mat wherever armoured vehicles turned. And if they turned at the end of the bridge, you needed a flat area of sleepers or rubble from a blown-up building or something like that where a tank could turn and wouldn't smash the, the ramp of the bridge. And these were very important because if they, if they weren't there, the bridges tended to get damaged very, very quickly. The bridges, how long they last? Well, they, they were there for most of the war. And touring Greece as a tourist in the early 60s, I came across dozens of Bailey bridges built by sappers, which warmed the cockles of my heart, naturally, <laughs> um, in gorges all over Greece. So it's not only in Northwest Europe, but they became the sort of rescue bridges all over Europe, where they'd be bridges had been blown up by the enemy, or indeed by us, of course, by our, our resistance people and that sort of thing. And maybe Johnson was selling the Bailey Bridge in the, in the 60s for construction use, and there was masses of stuff in store which could be used by local authorities in floods and that sort of thing. Um, so they lasted, in a sense, until you didn't need them anymore, but during the actual war, they, they, they lasted out until some silly bugger drove into it with his tank, and you had to take it all apart and put it back together again. Um, does that answer your question? I, I have in my mind's eye that uh, at the Pegasus Bridge Museum, they have a section of Bailey Bridge there, and inside they've got a box with a model, with all the components for a model Bailey Bridge. Yes. Is that what you would use in order to plan a bridge on the fly, as it were, when you get to a site? I mean, do they, do they no, actually no. use models? You, 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 engineer officers and sappers, and, and NCOs particularly, who, who are the chaps who actually control the, the thing being put together, would be so well trained that, that what, what you do, basically, is you send your most junior officer ahead. It's happened to me. Um, <laughs> And, and because he's the most dispensable, really. Um, and he, you, you send him to the bridge site, and his job is to reconnoitre the bridge site. And he, he, he measures the gap, and he measures the depth, he um, measures the ground bearing pressure, which in my day, when you carried a cane as an officer, if it went right in, that was one tonne per square foot. If it didn't go in at all, it was three tonnes per square foot. And if it went in sort of two or three inches, it was two tons per square foot. And from that, you worked out the grillage, which is the, 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 the um, foundation for, for the end of the bridge. 
Um, you worked out um, the um <coughs> height of the deck and uh, the amount uh, 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 that you'd have to jack it down off its rollers, because you rolled it in over a set of rollers. And then you went back to your commanding, commanding officer and said, I've got all the details, sir. He said, OK, well, design the bridge. Here's the book. Um, off you go. And, and you know, one of the first things you do as, a, as an engineer subaltern is work out bridges. You, you set a task. And then you, you know, how many, how many trucks do you want of panels? How many trucks do you want for the, for the ramps? How many trucks do you want for the transoms, the decking, and all that sort of thing? And they come in kits, of course. So it's all, in a sense, practiced and practice. And you just tap into established procedures. Like Gene Hackman, I'd like to ask about the Germans. Um, from the sapper's perspective, how close did the enemy come to stopping bridge building and bridge establishment? And how worried were the sappers about those efforts? Well, um, that's quite a good question. There were panics the whole time. Apart from the shelling I've already mentioned, which held up build bridging, bridge building, um, and, and wounded a lot of people and, and holed the pontoons and meant people had to take the damaged pontoons out and put new ones in and all that sort of thing. Um, there was a serious panic um, which resulted in the bridges all being rigged for demolition. And uh, the, 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 the sappers turned up and, and were told, right, you've just built this bridge, mate. You've now got to fit it for demolition because they were concerned that 21st Panzer was going to come across from the, from the east and counterattack the 6th Airborne Division area. So they rigged these bridges for demolition, and they sat there in armoured cars, like the ones out there, on the end of the bridges, with their finger on the button, waiting for the big moment when someone would turn up with a bit of brown paper which says, please blow this bridge up. Because you can't, as a sapper, blow a bridge up, very sadly, <laughs> unless you, you have a, a, a bit of paper signed by some fellow. Um, but but it's, a, it's actually a very, very serious business, because of the Sitang Bridge disaster. If you want a lecture on that, I, I'm, I'm available later on. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but there was a very, very complicated procedure for making sure you didn't blow bridges prematurely. Anyway, the panic went away, the bridges were, were, were stripped of their demolition charges, and then, of course, you get Operation Goodwood, and the, the Goodwood streams across these bridges, very, very heavy movement, um, and indeed the bridges formed bottlenecks um, when, when uh, the, the armoured division had done its, its sort of uh, it's, it's right turn and turn south to, to attack the Germans on, on the ridge, on the Big Abyss Bridge. Um, and they were a serious bottleneck. Um, and, and, um, but, but they were there basically till the end of the war. What I can't say is when exactly they were taken down. Um, but there you go. I'm sure many Frenchmen benefited from the sale of bridge <laughs> Well, um, uh, thank you, Dad. We could, I'm sure, talk about this for a lot longer. Thank you, everyone, for coming to listen to this talk, and a huge thank you to the Colonel Ingram Murray.